Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, where we do a verse-by-verse exegesis of the scriptures. So let's get straight into today's reading. It's a long one. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Jesus was setting out on a journey when a man ran up, knelt before him, and put this question to him. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You must not kill. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not bring false witness. You must not defraud. Honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Master, I have kept all these things from my earliest days. Jesus looked steadily at him and loved him. And he said, There is one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But his face fell at these words, and he went away sad, for he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded by these words, but Jesus insisted. My children, he said to them, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were more astonished than ever. In that case, they said to one another, who can be saved? Jesus gazed at them. For men, he said, it is impossible, but not for God, because everything is possible for God. So this is quite a famous reading. I'm sure you've heard a version of this before. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that could be said here. So let's get straight into it. What's the context? Jesus has been doing various healings. He's been in Perea near the River Jordan, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. So he's heading towards Jerusalem for the final week. The episode we have here is often called the rich young ruler. Basically, the key to understanding this passage when he's dealing with the young man is that Jesus is giving instructions to this particular man. The advice he gives is for this man. He knows the man's heart, and he knows what this particular man is required to do in order to achieve eternal life. Jesus knows that there's different things that can hold different people back from eternal life, and Jesus knows what's holding this man back. That means Jesus would not necessarily give the same advice to everyone. Let's keep that in mind. Verse 17, Jesus was setting out on a journey, so he's going to Jerusalem. When a man ran up, so this suggests urgency. This man is typically called the rich young ruler. He doesn't, it doesn't say that here in Mark's version, but Matthew's version specifically says that he's young and rich, and then Luke tells us that he is a ruler. So that's where we get this idea of rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus, he knelt before him and put this question to him. So he kneels before Jesus, that's a gesture of petition and profound homage. Good master, or we can translate that, good teacher. Now, it's possibly flattery here, but probably not. He's not flattering Jesus, it seems. He genuinely respects Jesus, and he's asking a genuine question of Jesus. He thinks Jesus is from God, and so Jesus will know the answer. Good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing to say about this phrase, eternal life, is it's equivalent to asking, how do I get into the kingdom of God? 
Typically, the Jews in Jesus' time didn't speak about eternal life, usually. They would normally think about it in terms of inheriting the kingdom or being at God's banquet, something like that. But here, the man does use the phrase eternal life. The man wants eternal life. He wants to be in the kingdom forever, and he wants to know how to get it. He's a good Jew. He wants to know how to be with God in the kingdom. Maybe he already knows the basic answer from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament does give us an answer, which is follow the commandments. Maybe he's dissatisfied with that answer. Maybe he's looking for a different answer. We don't really know. But in in any case, we should pay close attention to what Jesus says. Think about what the question is the man has asked. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We should sit up and pay attention to see what Jesus' answer is. Jesus is directly asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he actually gives us a direct answer, so we should listen. Now, in Matthew's version, it's phrased slightly different. The man says to Jesus, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is interesting. Either way, Jesus doesn't correct the man on this. The common Jewish view at the time was that everyone had a responsibility to serve God with their actions and choices. Now, if the Protestant view of salvation is correct, then what should Jesus' response have been to this man? Jesus would say something like, you don't need to do anything to inherit eternal life. You don't need to do any good deed. That's what you'd expect Jesus to say, but he says the exact opposite. Jesus says... There are several good works that you need to do to inherit eternal life. That's actually Jesus' answer, and we can't escape it. Now, Pope John Paul II makes an interesting point about this question. So here's what Pope John Paul II says in Veritatis Splendor. If the man is a faithful Jew, surely he already knows what is required to inherit eternal life. The answer was quite well known at the time, follow God's laws. The question which the young rich man puts to Jesus of Nazareth is one which rises from the depths of his heart. It is an essential and unavoidable question for the life of every man, for it is about the moral good which must be done and about eternal life. The young man senses that there is a connection between moral good and the fulfilment of his own destiny. He is a devout Israelite, raised as it were in the shadow of the law of the Lord. If he asks Jesus this question, we can presume that it's not because he's ignorant of the answer contained in the law. It is more likely that the attractiveness of the person of Jesus had prompted within him new questions about moral good. He feels the need to draw near to the one who had begun his preaching with this new and decisive proclamation. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that's a quote from Veritatis Splendor. I think it's a good summary of what might be motivating this particular man. So the question the man asks Jesus is, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now this seems like a strange response. Surely Jesus is not denying that he's good. We, as Christians, we believe Jesus is good and he knew he was good. So he doesn't want to deny that he's good. So what does he mean when he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. We also don't want to say here that Jesus is denying that he's God, which is how some people have taken it. So what's going on here? Keeping in mind that Jesus knows this man's heart, Jesus must have said these words because he knows the man needs to hear it. So here's what he says. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. There's a few different interpretations here of what Jesus might be meaning by this. 
maybe Jesus detects that the man is trying to use flattery. And so Jesus is not having a bar of it. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So he sort of says, I know you're flattering me. Stop doing it. Maybe that's an option. I don't think it's the best interpretation. Maybe Jesus knows the man is so focused on Jesus that Jesus has to remind him that eternal life ultimately comes from God. Maybe this man has become so fixated on this person of Jesus that Jesus has to point him actually back to God. He's saying, look, if you want to inherit eternal life, you need to follow God's will. That's certainly a good interpretation too. Most scholars have gone with a third interpretation, which is this. Jesus is trying to get the man to think hard about why why he calls Jesus good. What makes Jesus good? That's what Jesus is getting him to think about. Why do you call me good? What makes me good? So you could say that Jesus is offering the young man a kind of a riddle. And the solution to the riddle basically reveals that Jesus is God. He is divine goodness in the flesh. And it seems like we're meant to conclude that because as this episode unfolds, we discover that Jesus answers the man's question about what good needs to be done. So he does answer the question. But then the next thing he does is he urges the man to follow him as in he is the standard of goodness. That's sort of implied in Jesus' answer. In other words, Jesus ultimately presents himself as the way to salvation. He is the ultimate good for which the young man is searching. So Jesus could be doing a kind of a roundabout way here of getting the man to realize that Jesus himself is the standard of goodness. And I think that that's probably a good interpretation when you keep in mind that Jesus knows this man's heart and what he needs to hear at the time. Then Jesus goes on to actually answer his question. So verse 19, you know the commandments. Now that would not be surprising at the time for Jesus to say, what's the answer to how to get eternal life? It's in the commandments. That's not surprising to the Jewish mind. There's 613 laws in the Torah, according to one count, that the Jews were expected to obey. And the Old Testament has several passages that say, if you do obey God's commandments, you'll have a long and prosperous life. That's in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 33, it's all through the Old Testament. The basic Old Testament view is if you follow God's commandments, you'll have a good life. And from that, the Jews had extended that to mean you'll inherit eternal life. You'll be with God in the next life. Notice how Catholic this is. Jesus' answer is, if you want eternal life, you need to keep the commandments. That's very Catholic. In other words, in order to get inherit eternal life, you need to avoid mortal sin. The usual way of understanding mortal sin in Catholic teaching is basically uh, if you break one of the Ten Commandments, you've committed a mortal sin. So in a way here, Jesus is affirming Catholic teaching. He's saying you need to keep the commandments if you want to avoid mortal sin and inherit eternal life. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Now, in Matthew's version, the man then asks Jesus which commandments. So Jesus now goes on to specify which commandments he's talking about. Here's what he says. You must not kill. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not bring false witness. You must not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus here is listed basically five of the Ten Commandments that deal with human relationships. Did you also notice he added one other one that's not one of the Ten Commandments? He said, do not defraud. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, but... It is in the Torah. It's in Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. So Jesus says that also needs to be uh, mentioned when we give a list of the commandments in terms of human relationships. Perhaps also because 
Jesus knows this is a rich man and he knows maybe the rich man has a tendency to defraud, perhaps. Maybe that's why Jesus includes that in the list. So Jesus here lists five of the Ten Commandments. They all deal with the way you treat your neighbor. Notice that Jesus doesn't include the basic commandments at the start of the Ten Commandments, the ones like, you shall love the Lord your God. He doesn't include any from the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Now, certainly Jesus believes that you need to obey them in order to inherit eternal life. He actually says that in other places in the gospel. He says one of the most important commandments is love God. In fact, he says it's the most important commandment. So clearly, Jesus regards that as necessary for eternal life. So why doesn't he mention those commandments here? Maybe because it would have already been obvious to the man and Jesus knows that the man already knows that and he feels like he doesn't need to remind him, but he does need to remind him of the second tablet of the commandments. Or maybe the reason that those early commandments are not in this list of Jesus is that Jesus did actually say them, but the gospel authors didn't feel the need to include them in the way they recounted this story because that would have been very obvious to the Jewish readers. What's Jesus' answer here to how do you inherit eternal life? It's follow the commandments. Apparently, according to Jesus, that's what's required to get eternal life. These are the minimum requirements of eternal life, if we're interpreting this passage correctly. It would seem then that the other 600 commandments do not fall in the category of minimum requirements. Jesus here is kind of boiled it down to five commandments, at least for this man. He says, these are the five you need to follow if you want eternal life. And then notice what the man says in response in verse 20. Master, I have kept all these from my earliest days. Or you can translate that from my youth. Now, that probably means the age of 12. That's when a Jewish boy formally took on the yoke of the commandments. That's when they pledged to keep the commandments. So this man, if he's telling the truth, and I think we should believe him, has kept the commandments since the age of 12. That is an excellent effort. The man is not boasting here. As we'll see from his next question, he's not actually boasting. He's just saying, look, I have kept those commandments. Now, if the man was lying, if the man had not actually kept the commandments, you'd expect Jesus at this point to say, no, you haven't, because he would know that the man is lying. So I think we should say that the man genuinely has kept the commandments from his youth. For some Christians, that's controversial. Some Christians believe that it's not possible to keep all of God's commandments in the old covenant, and some would even say in the new covenant, it's not possible to live a life without avoiding serious sin. But this passage, I think, tells us that it is possible to keep God's commandments. In the time of Jesus, some people were doing it. Contrary to what some Christians say, it was possible. Now, it was certainly hard to keep the commandments. There would not be many people who could say they've kept these Ten Commandments all the time since their youth, but I don't think we should regard it as impossible. So Jesus hears this answer in verse 21. Jesus looked steadily at him and loved him. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is said to love an individual. So clearly this is some sort of gaze of divine love. And he said to the man, there is one thing you lack. So Jesus has read this man's heart. He knows that there's something holding him back from eternal life. And here's what it is. Go and sell everything you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Why does Jesus tell the man that he needs to go and sell all his possessions and give his money to the poor? Doing that would serve two purposes. Firstly, it would force the man to sacrifice his attachment to riches, which is apparently the thing that's preventing him from getting closer to the kingdom. 
And also because giving to the poor in itself is a good act. That's something that God requires. Tobit chapter 4 talks about this. Sirach chapter 29 talk about this. So in a sense, Jesus is asking the man to become dependent on God's providence as little children are. And that would link well with the previous episode. Jesus senses that the man needs to hear this. He needs to sell his possessions because he is attached to his possessions. Again, Jesus would not necessarily give us the same advice. He's just talking to this specific man. Jesus knows how much of a sacrifice it would be for him to sell his possessions. He knows how attached the man is to riches. Still, Jesus is honest. He says, look, this is what's required for you to progress in the kingdom and inherit eternal life. And then Jesus adds a second requirement. He says, then come follow me. So there's more. Not only is the man being asked to give away his riches, which is big in itself, Jesus then says, on top of that, you need to change your whole life and become a full-time disciple. That's when Jesus in his ministry says to people, follow me, he means become a full-time disciple. He's asking the man to leave his entire old life behind, not just his money. So in a sense here, we could say this is the point at which the first tablet of the law comes into play. Jesus is asking the man to commit fully to the kingdom of God by following Jesus. So Jesus here says, if you follow me, you'll be fulfilling your covenant obligation to love God. So Jesus here is subtly hinting. Well, in fact, he's not subtly hinting. He's saying that to inherit eternal life, you have to follow me. He's almost identifying himself with God, basically. Verse 22 But the man's face fell at these words, and he went away sad, for he was a man of great wealth. Now, that's significant. There's not many people in Israel at this time who actually were men of great wealth. Not many people were rich. This makes the request by Jesus all the more challenging. This man has probably worked hard to earn his money. He probably deserves the money that he has. He seems like a faithful Jew. So the fact that Jesus then says, go and sell it all, makes it even more challenging. Now, at this point, a lot of interpreters have said that Jesus, uh, that the man obviously doesn't comply. He doesn't sell his possessions. Actually, it doesn't say that. We don't know whether the man went and sold his possessions. All we know is that the man's immediate reaction was sadness, and then he went away. He might have gone away to think about it, and then he might have actually done it. We don't know. Why is the man sad? Well, either because he has to give up all his wealth, and he is not too happy about that, Or maybe because he knows that he can't give up his wealth and therefore he's sad that he can't achieve eternal life or he can't progress further in the kingdom. Now, we later learn that the disciples of Jesus do what this man couldn't. They actually literally do leave everything behind and follow Jesus. That happens shortly after this in Mark chapter 10. Verse 23, Jesus is now going to do a teaching based on what's just happened. He looks around and says to his disciples, so he's speaking to those who already follow him, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. So what's the kingdom of God? It's essentially the realm where God's will is done on earth. Notice here, Jesus basically says the kingdom of God is the same as eternal life. We sometimes forget this. In order for someone to become part of the kingdom, They have to make a commitment to follow God with their whole being. Now, here Jesus teaches that for some people, there's actually impediments that stop them from following God with their whole being. There's more than one impediment, but here he's going to focus on rich people in particular and how wealth can be an impediment to inheriting the kingdom of God. 
So he says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded by these words. Why are the disciples astounded by that? Well, here we need to keep in mind the prevailing wisdom at the time. What did Jews believe in this time period about riches? The basic belief was that wealth, if you were wealthy, it was because you had God's favor. Deuteronomy 28 says something like that. Psalm 25 says that. Sirach chapter 11 say that wealth is a blessing from God. Now, they also caution that wealth can be dangerous, but there is a general Old Testament theme that if you do well in life, it's because God is blessing you. So, of course, the apostles are going to be shocked when Jesus says how hard it is for rich people to enter God's kingdom, because that would imply they don't necessarily have God's favor. But Jesus insisted, so Jesus doubles down here. He doesn't back from, back away from the teaching. He keeps going. He says, my children. Notice that loving language. He's speaking as a loving father to his disciples. My children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some manuscripts here have this as how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter either way, really. But also, I think that word there is striking, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. That's the issue. Not having money but trusting in riches. That's the problem. Then Jesus gives this famous illustration, verse 25. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is a very Jewish metaphor. And Jesus here is actually continuing an earlier metaphor. Remember what he said earlier? He said, the road to the kingdom of heaven is narrow and few find it. This is a very similar metaphor, but to make his point this time, he picks basically one of the smallest things that his audience were familiar with, a needle. That's what, in fact, the eye of a needle is probably the smallest thing that a Jew could conceive of. And then he picks the largest thing that they could conceive of, which is a camel. That's one of the largest things in their land. It's, in fact, it's the largest domesticated animal in Israel. So what he's saying here is something like this. Imagine a camel trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle, or imagine the biggest thing you know trying to squeeze through the smallest thing you know. It's supposed to be a bit absurd. It's supposed to conjure up a kind of a funny mental image. It's supposed to. This is a common Jewish way of teaching. It's kind of like a a graphic image. And rabbis at the time would have done similar things to this. To his original audience, and of course, that's what how we should interpret it if we're looking for the literal sense, how would the original audience have understood it? They would think that this is virtually impossible. It's virtually impossible for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle. Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's harder than even a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. First thing to answer about this is why is it hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Based on what he's just said to the rich young man, the reason why it's uh, rich people struggle to enter the kingdom is because it's harder for them to detach from material things. They tend to put material things before God. You could also say it encourages greed and it discourages dependence on God. The great temptation for a rich person is for them to trust in one's status, wealth and abilities rather than trusting in God alone. That's why it's a barrier to the kingdom. Not that having riches in itself is a, king, is a problem, but it can lead to putting a trust in riches and that is the problem. Now, some interpreters have, probably because they don't like the implications of this, have tried to interpret this mini parable about the camel and the needle in an interesting way. 
Some have said that the needle Jesus is thinking of here is the needle's gate into Jerusalem. So the idea here would be that if Jesus is thinking of the needle's gate to Jerusalem, camels, there apparently were gates like this, is that camels would have to bend quite low to get inside the gate. And it was difficult for camels to do, but not impossible. Camels did it all the time. Camels can get through the needle's gate. Now, there's a few problems with this interpretation. The first problem is that we have no evidence that there is such a gate called the needle's gate. We have no evidence of that at all. Secondly, Jesus here doesn't say needle's gate. He says a needle. So I really don't think this is a good interpretation. The point Jesus is making is not about a gate. Here, he's talking about the eye of a needle. That's the whole point. He's taking the smallest thing they know and taking the biggest thing they know. So is Jesus saying that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom? You could interpret it that way. Because he, basically, it's certainly impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And if it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom than that, then by extension, yeah, maybe Jesus is teaching it's impossible. But I think given the Jewish nature of the metaphor and the fact that they tend to exaggerate, rabbis used exaggeration as, as a way of teaching. And also given the context of what he's just said with the man, I think it's better to interpret the parable here of the uh, camel and the eye of the needle, I think the basic idea is Jesus is saying it's extremely difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He's not saying it's impossible. Now, Jesus, in fact, is going to say that it is actually possible. It's possible for a rich man. It's possible for anyone to enter the kingdom, but only with God's help. In fact, if you think about it, there have been, we know that there are from the Gospels, there have been disciples of Jesus who are probably part of the kingdom and who are quite wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea is a good example of a rich man who is apparently entered the kingdom of God. So I don't think we should interpret the camel and the needle to mean that it's impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom. That's clearly not what Jesus is saying. Verse 26, the disciples were more astonished than ever, or you can translate that they were exceedingly astonished. Remember, the conventional wisdom at the time was that rich people were blessed by God. So what Jesus has just said is running counter to everything they know about uh, the Jewish requirements and and the Jewish view of who God favours. In that case, they said to one another, who then can be saved? So they're devastated, basically. They look at each other and say, who can be saved if even rich people can't be saved? Why are the disciples suddenly think about all people because Jesus has just been talking about rich people. So why do the disciples suddenly go, who then can be saved? As in they are thinking of all people now. Remember the Jews at the time considered rich people to be the most blessed people by God. So their thinking is, if even rich people, the most blessed by God, struggle to enter the kingdom, how much more than will everyone else struggle? That's their thinking. Notice that they equate being saved with entering the kingdom of God. Jesus has been talking about, in fact, the young man was talking about eternal life. Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God in his parable. And now the disciples then use the language of saved. They all mean the same thing. Let's keep that in mind. To be saved means to enter the kingdom of God, means to inherit eternal life. They're all the same in the New Testament. To be saved means to come into God's kingdom. To be, to be saved, basically, is to be saved from eternal death or separation from God. That's what to be saved means. It's to be saved from the kingdom of darkness. Often Christians don't talk about saved as being equivalent to entering the kingdom of God. They sort of see being saved as just a legal thing. But in the New Testament, 
it's always useful to keep in mind that being saved means to inherit the kingdom of God. And the Jews already had a pretty strong idea of what the kingdom of God looked like. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to show people the way into the kingdom of God. And that requires certain things on the part of people if they want to be part of the kingdom. Now, some manuscripts here say they said to Jesus, who then can be saved. It doesn't really matter either way. Verse 27, Jesus gazed at them, or just Jesus looked at them. So he's looking intently at the disciples. He wants them to understand what he's about to say, which is, For men it is impossible, but not for God, because everything is possible for God. So what's Jesus just said here? He has said, For men it is impossible to be saved. In other words, for men alone it is possible it is impossible to be saved, but not for God. With God, It is possible to be saved because with God, everything is possible. Or you can translate that, for all things are possible with God. The basic meaning here is that if men tried to achieve salvation alone, it would be impossible to be saved. But with God's assistance, anyone can be saved. That's the teaching, anyone, including rich people. In other words, man cannot achieve a supernatural goal using their own natural efforts because as a result of the fall... We can't access this supernatural life without God's grace. We need God's grace. But with God's grace, that goal is possible. We can get eternal life if we cooperate with God's grace. Now, to us as Catholics and as Christians, that's not particularly groundbreaking. But probably for his original hearers, that will be quite striking for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Jesus is reminding them that ultimately God is the one that saves people. It's not by people's own good efforts devoid of grace, which was probably a common Jewish view at the time. If you just tick certain boxes, you can be saved. That's Jesus has to remind them that's not right. And also, Jesus here is probably implying that all people can be saved because he says anything is possible for God. So rich or poor can both be saved and by extension, Jew or Gentile can be saved. All things are possible with God. Anyone can be saved with God's assistance. That in itself is groundbreaking. So Jesus is reminding them, as he does constantly, that the kingdom of God is something utterly beyond human achievement. It can't be earned or claimed as a right. Ultimately, entering the kingdom is a gift that comes freely from the goodness and the grace of God. So there's a lot in this story, isn't there? And there's probably a lot more that could be said about each part of this episode today. Now, straight after this, Peter asks Jesus straight away, if they themselves, the apostles, will inherit eternal life. What Jesus has just said about inheriting eternal life prompts Peter to say, what about us? What's going to be our reward? And Jesus will then address that next in the next section. Let's now turn to the catechism. There's just two places where we see this episode in Mark chapter 10 referenced, and they're really interesting. Paragraph 1858. This is in the distinction about mortal and venial sin. Really interesting paragraph. It says, Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments, corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich man. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and your mother. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is graver than theft. One must also take into account who is wronged. Violence against parents is in itself graver than violence against a stranger. So here the Catechism says that the basic way to understand what counts as grave matter in relation to mortal sin is breaking the Ten Commandments. And it it gets this teaching basically from this interaction between Jesus and the rich man.
paragraph 2728 is an objections to prayer uh, and how we have to face discouragement in prayer. Our battle has to confront what we experience as failure in prayer. Discouragement during periods of dryness, sadness that because we have great possessions, we have not given all to the Lord. Disappointment over not being heard according to our own will. Wounded pride stiffened by the indignity that is ours as sinners. Our resistance to the idea that prayer is a free and unmerited gift, and so forth. The conclusion is always the same. What good does it do to pray? To overcome these obstacles, we must battle to gain humility, trust, and perseverance. So early in that paragraph, it quotes directly from uh, Mark chapter 10 here. It says, one of the reasons that we can get sad or discouraged during prayer is because we know we have great possessions. Just as the man in the story became sad when confronted with the truth about himself and the kingdom, so can we when we think about our own great possessions. Really interesting connections there. I'll put both of those paragraphs in the show notes. Thanks for listening to today. It's a bit of a longer episode. I hope you learned something new. Please continue to tell other people about the ministry. Share this podcast around. Leave a review on iTunes. Subscribe on YouTube. And you can always send in questions to logicalbiblestudy at gmail.com. I'd love to answer them on the podcast. Or you can send in your feedback if you disagree with something you've heard um, or if you just want something clarified, or even if you just want to tell the ministry what you're getting out of it, how you first found the ministry, and the way to contact us, you can see that in the show notes. Thanks once again. We'll see you again tomorrow.